Sir, we wish to see Jesus. In the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. God is here. Amen. He is with you. I have been thinking about marriage. I've been married for a little over 22 years, so it's been on my mind. Um, I think about other things, but it keeps coming up. <laughs> now, this is not a sermon about marriage, but uh, so, so if you're not married, don't check out. And if you are married, don't check out. Um, <laughs> this is what I've been thinking about marriage, that, um, that it is a legal agreement. You know, when it, whether you get married in the church or out at the beach, the courthouse gets involved, right? Uh, in establishing the marriage. And, and if you ever decide that you want to get out of that marriage, then you know it's a legal agreement. It is painfully obvious because the lawyers will get all involved in it. Marriage is a legal agreement. But unless you happen to be like a medieval monarch or something, you don't get married for the legal nature of it. Right? You, nobody ever said they wanted to get married for the tax benefits. You get married because you love the person. Right? You, you, you want to spend the rest of your life with this person. Now, we're real good at making a mess out of our marriages. But I think we can all agree that that while marriage is legally binding, it is first and foremost deeply relational and emotional. Like there's this ongoing satisfaction of togetherness that draws us to marriage. And within this relationship, there is an expected vulnerability. I mean, if you marry somebody that has school debt, guess what you have now? School debt. If you marry someone who has kids, guess what you have now? Kids. If you marry someone with a past, that's your business now. It's not your job to be the judge, but a, a patient comforter and a grace giver and a healer. Marriage is a legal contract, but that is a terribly insufficient way to describe marriage. Marriage is a love relationship between husband and wife who are committed to loving one another with increasing depth and vulnerability and sharing forever till death do us part. And we have this word that we often use to describe marriage, and it is a word in our language that is hardly ever used to describe any other category of relationship, but it's the right word, and it's a biblical word. That word is Covenant. Covenant. And now you know why I'm talking about marriage in a sermon that's not about marriage. Because we're talking today about the new covenant. So we're going to talk about both passages, but we're going to start with uh, Jeremiah, the, the prophet, not the bullfrog, um, who incidentally was a good friend of mine. But... Um, in, in our reading from the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord promises His people a new covenant. And it won't be like the old covenant. Now, both covenants are a lot like marriage. Because in both cases, the old covenant and the new covenant, the covenants are legally binding. And, and not with like the local probate, but with God Himself. Uh, there are expectations and there are consequences. 
But the legal aspect is not the point. Right? The covenants of God were intended to create and foster a love relationship between God and his people forever. Now, there are several uh, covenants established and, and described in the Old Testament, but the, the covenant that God is referring here, uh, referring to here seems especially to be the covenant that God made with Moses at Mount Sinai. You remember what happened there? It was the giving of the Ten Commandments. Like, do these things, and you will flourish, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. But if you don't do these things, then you will face my judgment. Now, while it is relational, I will be your God and you will be my people, it probably felt a little more legal in nature than, this, than loving relational. But God is establishing in this covenant the boundaries for the relationship. He says, I'm binding myself to you. I'm the God who brought you up out of Egypt. And my, God, my job is to protect and to bless and to reward. Your job is to obey and to worship. And the people bowed down and they promised from their end of the relationship, all these things we will do. But they didn't. They did not. Though God remained faithful over and over and over again, the people strayed over and over and over again. They did not keep their end of the covenant in that generation. They did not keep their end of the covenant in any generation. They could not do it. And that's the problem. The problem wasn't their stubbornness or their rebellion. Their problem wasn't even that they were worshiping other gods. And those are all bad things, but they are all symptoms of the real problem. And the real problem is fallenness. Right? They have, there's the incapacity to serve God as He deserves. They can't fix the problem by trying harder or hearing more sermons or by having stricter laws. And so what God is saying is that He's going to fix their end of the problem. He's held up His end of the deal. They haven't, but He's going to fix their end of the deal. He's going to give them a new covenant. God says, this one's not going to be like the old one, which they broke, though I was their husband. See, the, the covenants are a lot like marriage. Legally binding, but deeply relational. I mean, it hurts God when they have broken those things. But God is speaking like a scorned lover. But He is not looking for divorce. He is looking for reconciliation. So he's giving a new covenant. And the old covenant was written on stone tablets. The new covenant will be written on their hearts. The, it will no longer be externally imposed, but internally given. It will no longer be commanded by God. It will be the desire of the people. Now it seems like he's going to upgrade the system. Like he says he's going to create human 2.0. But look at the world around you. Look, look at your own hearts. Has, has he? I mean, does there seem to have been a change in, in the human condition? Are we less inclined today to rebel or disobey? 
Are we more inclined to love God or love our neighbor? I mean, just look at the headlines. These are actual headlines I'm going to read to you about Florida man. Do you know about you know Florida man? Florida man charged with assault with a deadly weapon after throwing alligator through a drive-through window. Florida man gets tired of waiting at hospital, steals ambulance, drives home. I mean, at least it would be there if he started feeling bad again. You know what I'm Florida man denies drinking and driving, says he only swigged bourbon at stop signs. That's why I was texting, so. I mean, people are crazy, y'all. <laughs> now, if those seem like maybe the exception... Rather than the rule, we can look a little closer to home, right? Look at the reaction that you have when someone brings up the hot button topic. Look at whether we offer dignity and love to those who hold different political opinions than we do. Look at how we justify ourselves and let ourselves off the hook when we know we've done something wrong. Look at how we don't like looking. We don't like looking at our own flaws, but we don't mind looking at the flaws of others. I mean, I look at my own life, and I, and like you, like I've done some really good things, but I'm not a complete package. And I know my selfishness, like the psalmist says today, I, I know my transgressions. It does not look to me like I have the law of God tattooed on my heart. And my guess is that you can relate. And so what gives? Like, did, did God not do what he said he was going to do? That brings us to the Gospel of John. And where we find Jesus is in the last week of his life. He's already ridden into Jerusalem on the donkey. That's what we're going to look at next week. And, and, and now, these Greek men want to meet with Jesus. These were, so these were not ethnically Jewish men. They were God-fearing Gentiles, Greeks. But they came to the Passover festival because they wanted to worship the Lord and uh, made a pilgrimage there. And while they're there, Jesus catches their attention. Now maybe they saw the Palm Sunday procession and the hosannas and the palms and that impressed them. Or maybe they met Lazarus and that impressed them. Or saw another miracle. Or, or maybe they just want an autograph because he's creating a lot of buzz. We're not told. But they come to Philip and say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And so Philip grabs Andrew and they ask Jesus. And you would think Jesus says something like, I don't know, let me look at my schedule. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it is, uh, it, it is complete, he takes a complete left turn. It's like a bomb goes off in his brain. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what's going on here is that the Gentiles asking to speak to the Jewish Messiah signals to Jesus that it is the time for the Jewish Messiah to become the Savior of the world. As a grain of wheat gets buried in the ground and then springs up from the ground to produce a whole stalk of wheat, so the Son of Man has come to die and to be buried and to spring forth from the grave to give life to the whole world. 
This is why He's come, He says. This is His glory, and this is the glory of the Father. This is the activation of the new covenant. So if you go back and look at Jeremiah, the prophet, he says that the outcome of the new covenant is that they will all know Him. And he says that the mechanism of the new covenant is divine forgiveness. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. And Jesus is headed to the cross for that very purpose. To forgive our iniquity and remember our sins no more. The hour has come, he says, for him to take our sin upon himself. Now the sin has to be punished. Remember the the breaking of the covenant has legal consequences, but rather than make us take the judgment that God's law requires, the judge is taking upon himself his own judgment so that we, so that he can forgive our iniquity and remember our sins no more. Now why would he do that? So that he can assure that loving relationship with you. With you. See, the the new covenant that God promised through Jeremiah is signed, sealed, and delivered through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Grace upon grace. Mercy upon mercy. You know, in my own marriage, uh, there have been times where I've really made a mess of the covenant promises that I made to my wife Amy. And probably especially the part about to love and to cherish. Because there was that one time when I was impatient. (laughs) And there was that, that other one time where I lost my temper. And that other time that I said I'd some, said something that I would later regret. And in those times with Amy, what I've seen in her is, is three things. One, it hurts her. And two, she loves me anyway. And three, she forgives me. And man, that's the worst in the moment. Like, I just want her to fight. Come on, man. You know what that does to me? It makes me, like when my heart rate goes down, it makes me want to be a lot more patient next time. It makes me want to be a lot more careful with my words next time. Because there's going to be a next time. Grace changes us. And it makes the relationship what it's supposed to be. And it may not make us perfect in this life, but but when we have eyes to see what it costs the one who is giving it out, grace makes us want to honor the grace giver. And it works that way in marriage, and it works that way with God in the new covenant. Because when we see, I mean, when we realize at a soul level what it costs for Him to give us grace, for our sin, what our sins have cost him, the very life of Jesus, 
given willingly. That grace changes us. I mean, not perfectly, I, I admit, but it changes to make us want to honor Him with our lives. In other words, you know what that does? His grace writes the law of God on our hearts so that we shall know Him. Jesus said, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to Myself. You know, He knows everything about you. Gosh, He loves you so much. Forever. Amen.